This conference will now be recorded. This is our uh, hearing officer roundtable for 2021. Uh, we just did some discussion uh, before I started recording. It's up to you if you want to leave your camera on or off. Uh, if, uh, if you do want to ask a question and you have a camera, you should turn it on at that point. Uh, Martin Rios, we're getting a lot of noise from your phone, so if you, if you can't mute yourself, I'm going to mute you from this end. Okay, you, you did mute yourself. Thank you. So, yeah, please be careful that uh, if you're not asking a question to go ahead and mute yourself. We are going to pr be pretty informal today. Uh, we do have a number of terrific questions, and I have prepared a couple of charts that I think will make you very happy. Uh, one of them was prompted by a question from Ms. Blanco, uh, and uh, so you, you'll be very happy to have received that. Uh, and but th this is your time. We're we're going to spend the next uh, 86 minutes uh, answering your questions, uh, addressing your concerns. Taj has got a presentation about policies, uh, and um, again, this this is going to be rather informal. I will prepare a packet that um, will will include many of the things that we talk about today. I didn't do that in advance because I don't know all of the questions you'll come up with today, but I will prepare a packet that will be uploaded to Hightail. Uh, and again, the video will be uploaded to YouTube with a secret link, and this should be available as an audio-only podcast as well. Uh, so everyone just keep that in mind. Um, there, there can be times when I will turn the recording off in case there are questions or things we want to discuss that we don't want recorded. Uh, I'll introduce everyone else at this point. We are joined by uh, presiding Judge Keith Russell, who just looks, and if he looks particularly happy, it's because he only has about uh, four weeks left as presider, and, and he's just too excited about that. Uh, we do have Judge Anna Huberman. Uh, Judge Huberman is the chair of the Education Committee, uh, and she will be running for uh, presider. We do have Judge Lenore Driggs. Uh, Judge Driggs is chair of the Staff Education Committee. She will be running for associate presider. Uh, we should be judge, uh, joined by Judge Kathy Riggs. She is in Hawaii, but she promised to uh, get off the beach long enough to, to join us. Uh, maybe she's having some Wi-Fi troubles there, uh, but she should be joining us as well. Uh, and so before we uh, get into some of the pre-prepared questions, does anyone want to start us off with a question or do any of the judges want to say anything? Nope, okay. I mean, the, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, the idea of a round table is for everyone to be able to bring up topics and kind of have an informal uh, presentation. Um, we, we do have some questions that were submitted ahead of time um, that, that we can talk about, but, you know, partly the idea is not us to be talking about what we want to talk about, but uh, you all bringing up whatever things you uh, 
uh, run into or that you might have any doubts or any questions about. All right, how many of, uh, of the judges here are civil traffic only? I think you meant the hearing officers, not the judges, right? The hearing officers here are civil traffic only. How many are small claims? How many do both? Because we do have a mixture of questions from both ends, uh, and we'll just go ahead and start. Leticia, did you have a question? No. Thank you. All right. So the first question is a civil traffic question. In civil traffic court, should the statute that was violated be read at the beginning of each hearing? Or if there are several cases on the docket with the same violation, is it acceptable to read the statute just at the beginning of the court session and not repeat the reading of the statute as each case is called? And I'll um, take the first shot at answering this one. Uh, I will tell the parties, you are charged with speeding. Do you understand that? Um, if they, you know, if you, you are charged with running a red light, you are charged with um, a stop sign violation. If they indicate that they don't understand the charge, then I will read the statute there. Uh, if you do have a pocket with a lot of people uh, and um, someone, okay, Leticia, I'm going to mute you. Okay, you didn't mute. Uh, and so if you do have a docket and you have other speeding violations, when that person is, is up, you can say, uh, and, and Mr. Tolby, did you hear uh, you're charged with a speeding violation? Did you hear me read the statute earlier? Um, you know, you can always read the statute. There, there's certainly no harm to reading the statute. Uh, if you have the time, it certainly doesn't hurt to do that. Uh, I will lose my voice if I start talking too long. And so I will try to do things like, you know, to everyone present today, um, if you're charged with a speeding violation, here is the statute. Uh, when, when there's a collision uh, and they're charged with the failure to control their speed to avoid a collision, that can cause confusion. And so that's one of the ones that if there is a collision, I'll go ahead and read. Um, some of the lane violations or some of the other violations can, can be a little weird. Uh, so if I don't read it at the beginning, I'll probably read it at the end if I'm going, um, when I make my ruling. Uh, so that, that's how I would answer that question. Does, does anyone have a different take on it? Charles, can I? I, I was the one who brought up that question. And the reason I did was that at one particular session, I had like approximately 10 cases. And when I finished all the court hearings, the court manager said they had complaints from the officers and troopers that it was taking too long before we got to their particular case. Um, and I said, well, I think everybody deserved the right time to hear their particular charges. And in some cases, some of these people, the defendants, and these are sometimes either the troopers come in a little bit late. So I always started to, you know, I started the session would bring up the statute. 
And obviously, as you just said, it takes a little longer when you, you read the statute. So I'm kind of betwixt in between because I, in my opinion, I think it's only fair that the defendant know he's being charged for what the statute says and then go on with the case. But I was, I don't want to say reprimanded, but spoken to to say you took too long. And in some cases, in this particular time, I think they allowed like 10 minutes for each particular case. That's why I brought the question up. Anything with enough time. It shouldn't take that long to read the statute. So that. I, I would just say be aware that a lot of the statutes have a lot of legal language in there that actually might be more confusing for the parties than, than helpful. Um, I also read the statutes, don't get me wrong. Um, but I will maybe skip parts uh, that are not pertinent or that are confusing, as long as it doesn't change the meaning, obviously, right? I mean, I have to go get a statute now to show you, but um, like the, the statute for speeding, the one that, the, that, that Charles brought up, does talk about the conditions of the roadway and it, it has language that's a little confusing. And so you could just say the speed you know, according to the conditions of the roadway or, or, or the conditions of traffic or whatever that language is, uh, just be a little bit more more succinct. But I believe that you should read it. And I think it helps you to read it because it reminds you of what are the elements that you are looking for. And Judge, what I, what I do, I do not read the statute. It may have A, B, C, D, and E. I read the part that the uh, citation quotes or indicates. That there being that the violation took place. That cuts part of the time. I just I just felt, and I spoke to some other court managers and said, you know, um, maybe we got to allow a little more than ten minutes. Or if I'm going to hear the cases, I would let like you to allow me at least fifteen minutes or you know whatever the cases. But I know in this particular situation there was just a numerous amount of, of cases and. The, the other aspect of this was sometimes a trooper comes in and he has maybe two or three of the cases, and I usually just take them in order that the clerk gives them to me. So sometimes I, that trooper may be number one, and then he may not come up to number three. And if I know that he has two or three, I'll try to put bundle them together so he doesn't, he or she doesn't have to stay in the courtroom for the whole session. I, I'll bring up one of the things to say, and you tell me whether it's correct or not. And I've only been doing it probably about, this is my third or fourth year. Um, again, in some of the sessions, some of these troopers say, well, come on, let's get going. I have to get going or it's my day off. You know, like they're irritated that they have to be in the courtroom. And my response to them politely is, you know, this is part of your job. I'm sorry that we have 15 cases or 10 cases, and that case happened to be number eight. Well, that's, you have to wait until your turn comes up. And I don't want to be hard-nosed about it, but you know, what do you do? There's only one of me is the hearing officer, and there's five or six or eight of the troopers. I, uh, I, I would say. Yes, Mary. I, I was just going to say, as a former clerk, 
the way cases are scheduled are as they come in, the first one will get one o'clock and the second one will get two and so on. So the officer that was scheduled for one may be scheduled at three. So that's not something that is your fault. And I don't see how you could group them together because if you're hearing his case at one o'clock, the three o'clock person isn't there. So he, I don't know why they don't understand this because they've been officers for years, unless it's a new police uh, DPS officer. But I have a question. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead and finish. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, no, that's okay. I was just trying to make a point that it's not really an officer's fault or staff. It's just when the people come in and the way it's scheduled on the court's calendar. We have no control. Maybe you can explain that to any officer that has anything okay. to do. Okay. All right. Go ahead. My question is Is there a procedural reason why? if in fact there is one officer that has you know five cases out of the 12 cases on the docket that day can they not be all bundled in one or is there a reason why they all have to be set up the way they come in like um, mary just explained it's whichever one comes in first it, it would be very time consuming for staff to do that it is whoever comes to the window first or whatever, that's how they're calendared. It would take lots of time to look at officers' names, call the people or, or write the people telling them, you know, so it's just not, it, it would it'd be burdensome. It would be burdensome. So then my next question is, as the hearing officer, the morning of or the afternoon of, can we as hearing officers say, okay, go through the docket and say, I've got officer uh, John Doe that has five of these cases out of the 12. Can I just put them together myself as a docket? I mean, as a bundle or is that something that is controlled by the procedures as well? I think that if that if they, if they were set at the same time by the court, you could definitely keep the officer on the stand on the on as, as you know when they call all of that officer's cases i would be really concerned if you had an officer with five cases uh, i think that there would be something really wrong with that situation but you can definitely if they have another case uh, call them at the same time the order of the calendar only makes a difference if they are set at different times, what you can't do is make a defendant have to wait an hour and a half so the officer can arrive late or um, expect the defendant to be there early because the officer was already there. So if your policy is to give them 10 minutes, you know, to, to be late, you wouldn't call that case on time, for example, you would still comply with your policy. Now I was just going to make a comment. Then we get complaints from from the public that they have to do it four hours for, for their case. We get that anyway, as all the judges probably know. Uh, so yeah, it's a little impossible to group them or by office. 
Um, Ed, Ed Rocco, uh, if you can't mute your phone, I'm going to have to mute you because we're getting some noise from your phone. Okay, so, let me try. Uh, if if you are going to take a defendant before their started time, their, their, their time for hearing, I would get on the record. We're starting, um, this matter is scheduled at 1 o'clock. We're starting at 1245. Um, uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Russell, are you ready to proceed at this time? And if they say yes, you can go then. If they say no, then you'll wait till one o'clock. Uh, and then back to the original question that Mike had that complained about wasting officers' time. It is never a waste of time to read the statute. Uh, that, that is something that, that you can and should do, uh, um, particularly if there's a question about it. If not at the beginning, then at the end when you make your ruling. Um, so that is never wasting anyone's time. Uh, if you're running really slow because you do have a lot of downtime, then that would be something that might be um, concerning. So, uh, but, but actually doing the case and reading the statute is not wasting anyone's time. And I'm sorry, when I introduced everyone, I, I don't think I introduced Taj Rahilu. Uh, you should all know Taj Rahilu. She's our administrative pro tem. Uh, she is your primary point of contact for um, all, all, most of your concerns. And Tosh, why don't we go ahead and we'll do your PowerPoint at about four o'clock. We can get rolling with some other questions. I do want to mix them up. So we'll go to a small claims question. And this one, oh, that's what I meant to do. This one I will address to judges Huberman and Driggs in small claims court. Is it acceptable to tell the parties that we are limited to a certain amount of time to hear the case? Should we direct them not to repeat what they have written on their summons or answer or discuss the evidence they have attached to the case which has been given to the court? Are you waiting for me to answer that? <laughs> go ahead. Go you ahead. can go ahead. I would just say um, when you are limited on time, I think it is fair to say in the beginning how much time each side is going to get and then make sure you um, stick to that. Um, that's how you keep control of the whole situation, the whole hearing. Um, I know that um, sometimes in just regular trials that I have, I'll let people talk more than they should and things get long, um, but I have you know, that flexibility because I have longer to do that. And, and in your small claims, hearings are often scheduled pretty close together and you don't so I think it's fair as long as you give both sides the same amount of time and they do that in family court all the time they keep a clock so you know it happens everywhere as to repeating what's in the summons or the complaint and what is um, the exhibits that were attached uh, technically whatever is written in the complaint is not part of the hearing because that was just part of the written complaint. So for that to become part of the hearing, there has to be testimony to it. So the fact, I mean, I would say it's actually the opposite. Uh, just allowing what was in the complaint to stand as written is not technically the correct way to do it. They would need to testify as to what was said and they would need to introduce the evidence. I understand that small claims is a little bit more 
um, informal than what we do in the in civil, uh, but it's very typical that the self-represented litigants uh, assume that because they wrote it in the complaint or because they attached it to the complaint, they don't have to talk about it again. And then they, they will assume that you saw it or that you read it. And so I think the way around that is to say, you know, together with your complaint, I saw you had a photograph attached. Do you want to tell me about that photo? Do you want me to consider it? Do you want me to look at it? Um, so it, you know, we're not playing gotcha here to try to say, oh, you didn't talk about it now. I'm not going to consider it. Uh, you know, bring it up and help them. But uh, it, it shouldn't, because if they don't talk about it, then the other party doesn't get a chance to question them about it. And so you're just taking the fact of whatever was written in the complaint, and because there was no testimony to it, the other party might not know or might forget or might not realize that they had an opportunity to ask questions about that. Thank you. And, and I would add, if you're going to impose time limits, then you need to announce that at the beginning of the case. You cannot decide halfway through the case, Ms. Huberman, you've only got three minutes left to finish your case. Uh, you know, you, you and the great thing, the wonderful thing about doing it in the beginning is you can go over the time limits if, if you have the time. Uh, you know, you can go over the time limits or to just ignore that you impose time limits if you want to, if it's a good case and you have the time and you need to hear all this evidence. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't decide halfway through the case that now you're going to impose time limits because that probably means that you gave the plaintiff a whole bunch of time and now you're not giving the defendant uh, very much time to respond. Uh, and we do have some comments. Yes, I have. I do usually let them know uh, that we only have 30 minutes, but at the beginning of the case, I will say something like it is now three o'clock the case, it's not 3.15, this case was in the court's calendar at three o'clock, so that they know they still have their, their whole 30 minutes. And also, if you have a lot of evidence, we have the luxury of continuing, right? As a small, I, I don't usually do that, but if there's a lot, I've, I've only continued, I think, one case. One, because it was on video and, and they had a lot of uh, information and we didn't have it. So I had to continue it for the following month. So I just want to let the hearing officers know that they can, they can continue. I just you know, just have to let, let staff know, and then they will inform the parties. Usually before they walk out of the room, I like to have the court date so they know. Okay. And uh, Judge Driggs is having problem with her audio. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, Judge, you can go to settings. That is the sun up in the upper right hand. Click on that and then um, click on the phone and you can um, join by phone and then connect it to your picture. That's what I've done. I'm actually appearing by phone so that this way, even if your internet goes out, you still can hear and talk. So if you, if you wanna take a few minutes to, to figure, and that works for anyone else here. I'll also introduce Judge uh, Darcy Weed. Uh, Judge Darcy Weed is a full-time pro tem, and yes, that's an oxymoron. She's a full-time pro tem in Yuma County. Uh, so thank you for joining us. 
I'll go with another uh, small claims question. And I think this will be of, actually, since, since Judge Driggs is gonna figure out the phone, I'll, I'll go to civil traffic. All right, so this question is sort of stipulated judgments in civil traffic. I see that some lawyers contacted the citing officer and convinced the officer to sign a document stating that the officer requests to amend the citation to a lesser offense and that the defendant will plead responsible. The agreement is often something that I would not allow during a hearing. Typically, one or both parties will fail to appear. How should we handle this? All right, and there's a lot to unpack in that. Uh, first off, it is absolutely improper for an officer to make any motion other than continuance. The officer is not a party. The rules specifically say that the officer is not a party. The officer cannot um, amend. And what? And the other problem, the underlying problem here is that this is probably masking. Uh, and uh, we have had masking classes in the past. You can go to the Hightail Resources website and you'll see um, there's previous masking presentations in there. We also have uh, made available a National Judicial College presentation on masking that was available for COJET for our civil traffic hearing officers. Uh, so we have to be careful about masking, but um, officers cannot make motions other than continuances. So they can't move to amend. And if one or both parties fail to appear, then you follow the rules. If the officer doesn't appear, then the matter is dismissed. Any questions or comments about that? Explain masking, Charlie. Masking Probably is, everybody knows, but just in case. Yeah. Uh, what masking is, is uh, when there's a commercial driver's license violation, uh, there are uh, many of the moving violations have very bad consequences on your commercial driver's license. And so you will get uh, uh, attorneys representing the, I mean, first of all, if you have an attorney representing somebody in the civil traffic, then it may very well be a uh, commercial driver uh, because most people, you're gonna pay more for the attorney than you are for the, the penalty. Uh, so by having the attorney there, that's probably an indication that it is a commercial uh, driver's license. And if they're trying to move, change a moving violation to an equipment violation, what they're doing is trying to, to avoid the consequences that come from having a moving, moving violation affect the commercial driver's license. The reason that this is an issue is it does affect, oh, and Judge Driggs doesn't have cell phone connection either. So <laughs> where are you? Uh, so uh, it is uh, it is um, a concern and something that you do need to be careful about. So any other questions about that one before we move on? All right, we'll move over to the small claims one, uh, and this is this is a good one. So in small claims, we routinely see uh, homeowners associations adding mandatory monthly or quarterly fees for billing or generating notices in addition to the allowed late fee that are automatically added to an owner's bill every time they are late. The HOAs seem to be inventing additional late fees under a different name 
to get around the statutory limit? How should we handle this? this I think Lenore is smiling. <laughs> I think she's pretending that her, her sound is out, so you can go first. <laughs> Go ahead. It was working and then not working and working, so just go ahead. <laughs> we can hear you now, so take advantage of it. Okay, well, I, um, I'll i admit that sometimes well, I get frustrated with the HOA fees. Um, they seem to be difficult to overcome, but I, I make sure to always read the, um, the lease or the contract um, to see what exactly it says and if there are any parts of it that don't include what they're trying to add, then I can easily take them out or argue that, well, not argue, but, you know, state what does it say that you can do this and what does it say that you can do that? Um, and if they can't point it out, then I can easily take those out. Um, but a lot of times it's right there and I, my hands are tied um, unless it feels unconscionable or not reasonable. Yeah, I, I mean, I would add to that that a lot of those fees that they add are added by the management companies and are not part of the CCNRs. And uh, but it does require you to do a lot of digging uh, to figure out where the fees came from and if you want to include them or not. Um, the 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 cases that the HOA cases <clears throat> that uh, higher attorneys turn out to be very, very expensive for the homeowners. So there's a lot of HOAs that actually don't do their own filings or the management company doesn't do the filings for them and they go through a law firm. And those cases routinely, today I had a judgment submitted that was for $500 that was owed in fees and they wanted $2,700 in attorney's fees. So when you compare it to the, you know, to the the twenty or thirty dollars that they're adding to the late fees or something, it's really nothing. Um, that doesn't make it necessarily right. I'm just saying that, you know, it, it's sometimes in the in the in the grand scheme of things, um, those additional fees might not be, uh, you know, terribly onerous, but. Um, but I did see that the question did talk about that the fees are going up to $300 or $400. And I think that's something that's worth at least questioning. All right, does anyone else have anything to add on this? Yes, I'd like to add to it because actually uh, I'm on the board of an HOA up in Prescott. And I haven't had any small claims on this, but I know a lot of these fines, you're not going to find them in probably in the CCNRs, but you'll find them uh, maybe sometimes in the bylaws or in, in, in policies that the boards have uh, developed over the years. And just as Judge uh, Huberman mentioned, I mean, if we get a case like that, I think I have to get all these documents to see what fines are right and which ones may not be. And of course, yeah, the, the lawyers, I mean, they always tack on quite a bit. And I know just from the standpoint of within the HOA, uh, generally, uh, 
uh, when uh, a delinquent account is turned over um, to an attorney's office, then you know they make some sort of arrangement with the HOA of how they're going to collect and what part will go to them and what part will go to the HOA. So it's not it's not a very simple situation to look at. Anyone else have anything else? All right, Taj, we'll go ahead and we'll do your admin presentation right now. All right. All right take it um, if you can go to the next slide, please, Charles. So this is just to give you a little overview of what policies govern your role as a hearing officer. Um, on Hightail, Charles has uploaded a copy of the policy as well. So if you'd like to go grab a copy, print it out and keep it for reference, you can. Hearing officers are governed by bench policy 4.1.9. And this just gives you a little bit of information about where you can find that in the shared drive or on Hightail. Next, uh, next slide, please, Charles. And it is in those policies where you'll find the important information about what the requirements are that you need to satisfy in order to maintain your status as a hearing officer from year to year, because as you know, your appointment is only for one annual year. Um, applications are actually about to come out again for the new cycle in mid-July. Usually they go out a month before the deadline this year because of changes in those policies. The deadline has changed to August 15th. So please make sure that you get your application submitted by midnight of August 15th because that is a hard deadline. And in the policies, it will uh, set out for you what the case requirements are that you need to have handled. That's the minimum. We always encourage you to do more. But of course, all you have to actually need are the minimum of 15 small claims cases and 30 civil traffic cases. Um, if you do both civil traffic and small claims, you have to be, meet both requirements. If you do one or the other, just the uh, respective requirements. This year, that requirement has been waived due to the uh, issues involving COVID. So although I've been getting your case logs and I know that many of you have met your requirements, it's not actually necessary this year. Next year, it probably will be back in place. So please make sure starting uh, August 15th that you are getting those cases met through your new cycle. You also have COJET requirements, which are six hours that have to be Maricopa County Justice Court sponsored COJET. The requirements are listed in this slide. You guys should be familiar. One hour of ethics, half an hour of computer network security training, which has to be renewed each year. Um, the annual, I'm sorry, not the annual, yes, the annual law and procedure update, which is coming up in the coming months. Some of you have reached out to ask about that because you haven't gotten that satisfied yet. That training's on the books to be, it's scheduled to be occurring in the next month or two. Um, and then every other year you have to do a anti-harassment, anti-discrimination workplace training. You can do that online if you missed the implicit bias course. If you did do the implicit bias course, that satisfied that for this year. EDMS proficiency is also required under the new policy, um, policy changes that were made. If for any reason at any time you guys aren't able to meet 
one or the other of these requirements. Exceptions can be made for good cause, but only at um, with the approval of the presiding justice of the peace. So currently that's obviously Judge Russell. We don't yet know who that will be going forward, but you would need to reach out to the presiding justice of the peace and ask for a, an exception in writing in order to, to get that exception met. Next slide, please, Charles. And we did schedule that annual update for July 22nd. Great, July 22nd. So please be at that one because that'll make um, your requirements, that'll satisfy your requirements for most of you. Cojet training. So I've gotten some questions about this over the past uh, several months that I've been in this position. Sometimes you guys will ask me, hey, can I get credit for this? And it is not an MCJC course. It's something maybe through the NJC or another organization that you've done independently. Under our policies, only MCJC sponsored training classes are automatically given COJET credit. Um, however, if there is a course that you believe was very relevant to what your function and duties are as a hearing officer, you can submit that material to the presiding justice of the peace prior to taking the course and ask for pre-approval. If the, just, uh, the presiding JP gives you pre-approval, they will let you know how much COJET uh, credit they are willing to give, he or she is willing to give for that class. Sometimes you guys take courses that are one or two days. Very infrequently will the full time be given credit for COJET. Perhaps the presiding can give an hour or an hour and a half of credit for that. But that has to be pre-approved. Um, also, just so you know, this year we've been allowing online virtual COJET, but normally your COJET has to be in person attended live. At some point, we will possibly go back to that, um, but for now, that's not being enforced, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, next slide, please. Accessing the hub. I get a lot of hub questions. Um, some of it, you might want to take a screenshot or pull the, these materials will be on Hightail as well. Pull these materials up on Hightail because this is a page that you will probably want to refer back to. It will answer almost all of your hub questions. First of all, some of the, uh, your problems are coming because you're using the wrong browser. Um, you should use Microsoft Edge or Firefox when accessing the hub, not Chrome or some of the other browsers. Um, there's the website for accessing the hub that's um, in the materials. You also have to have an account in the hub in order to access it. Now, most of you should have accounts, but frequently you have forgotten what your account login information is, or you have, have not used it in so long that it is no longer active. So if you don't have an account, I've included the link to register an account with the hub. And if you do have an account or have previously had an account, but you've forgotten it or it's gone inactive, you will have to contact Keenan DeWitt and his email address is at the bottom of this slide for him to basically reactivate your account. You can't reactivate it on your own. He needs to do it. And then you can log in using your regular login information. Many of you have forgotten that as well. Your username will be whatever email address you used when you originally registered your hub account. So you'll, you'll have to remember what email address you used. And then if you've forgotten the password, a password you can reset it. Um, there will be prompts and instructions for forgot your password, click that link and then it'll walk you through the steps of how to reset your password. Keep in mind that these passwords are case sensitive, 
and you are encouraged and possibly required to use capital and lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols in your password. So if you ever have a question, many of you come to me, that's fine. Just to let you know, I will then direct you to Keenan because Keenan is the guru of all things hub. Um, and his email address is right below. And so he is the person who can answer most of your hub questions. But if you do forget, you forget his name or you forget his email, obviously come to me and I can get you to the right place. Next slide, please, Charles. COA procedures. Now, I use a lot of acronyms in shorthand just because it saves time, but I've realized that some of you are not familiar with them. So this is the opportunity for me to let you know COA stands for Certificate of Attendance. There is a Certificate of Attendance attached to all of the CoJet training courses that Charles puts on for you guys. Those are always located on the last page of the written training materials. Those are usually forwarded with the information for the training. And then after the training is over, they are uploaded to Hightail. On all of Charles's emails, he has underneath the signature line, judicial resources, and he has a link to Hightail. So if you have forgotten it, and I have it in these slides as well, but if you've forgotten it, anytime you get an email from Charles, it is always there. Hightail is where all of the written materials are uploaded from any of the trainings that MCJC puts on. And on the last page, if it is CoJet eligible, you will find the COA, the Certificate of Attendance. You will need to then sign it, date it. You can electronically send it back to me and, and Keenan, and Keenan will input it into the system for you. If you like to do these things yourself, let me know. There is a very lovely, very short video Keenan prepared that can teach you guys how to upload your own COAs into the hub if you if you want to do that. Um, in any event, uh, the video recording of whatever training that Charles has done will then usually be sent out within a day with the YouTube link. So that's how you get that. If it's an AOC sponsored training, then it will be accessible through Wendell, which you will have to get a Wendell account to access. But usually yours would be just through the YouTube links. Immediately after a training, I get a flurry of emails from many people asking, where's the certificate of attendance? I came in late, how can I see the video? Where's the recording? They will be up usually by the end of the day, but they are not up within five minutes after Charles has finished. So that's why you don't have it yet. Usually um, he has it up by the end of the day, definitely within 24 hours by the next day. So if you guys will just wait for you know a few hours and then check at the end of the day, you'll find all of those materials there. If you don't, let me know. I'll be happy to get it to you. Next slide, please. Um, some just miscellaneous administrative details that I've got questions from hearing officers about in the past. How do I find the, the video so that I can watch it? Um, like I said, that's usually a YouTube link that I will email to you as soon as I get it from Charles if the recording is available. Sometimes some of these trainings are not recorded for um, various reasons, copyright issues. And in those instances, you have to be on live to get the certificate of attendance and show participation. There's no recording available for you to watch. Um, but most of them are recorded and available and the YouTube link will be sent to you as soon as I get it. 
for the written materials, those are on Hightail. Like I said, by the end of the day, there's the link. If you need a COA, I try to send out as a courtesy a copy of the blank COA after every training to everyone um, so that you don't have to go to Hightail and figure it out for yourselves because I know some of you that that's a little difficult. Um, so if you're if you're willing to wait a day, I usually have that out to you guys within 24 hours. If you want it immediately, you might want to go on and check on Hightail by the end of the day. And then for all the podcasts, you go to Anchor that's um, listed there with the website as well. Uh, next slide, please. That's everything. If you guys have any questions, as always, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm always your contact person. I don't have the answer to every question, but I am here to help find the answer to every question you might have and direct you to the right resource. Do you have any questions? No? Great. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate all of you. You're, you're doing a great job of sending your case logs and your reports into me on a very timely basis. That makes it much easier for me to keep track, to keep you updated which I did just last month with a, a status update of all of your requirements, where you're at and satisfying those requirements and what you still have left to meet before applications are due. If any of you had any questions about that, feel free to reach out to me. I do plan to do one more of those status updates, probably about a, a, a few weeks to a month before the applications are due so that you know where we're at with the final check. If you have any questions, I'm always here. Thank you. Thank you, Taj. And we have been joined by Judge Kathy Riggs, all the way from Hawaii. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Judge Riggs is the chair of the Pro Tem Hearing Officer and Mediator Committee. Uh, so um, we welcome her presence today. Uh, and let's move on to the next one. Um, All right, so, and uh, this question is a personal loan where a person owes one for some money and stops payment for a time and then resumes payment. When does the statute of limitations apply? So this inspired me to create a, uh, a new chart. And those of you who know me know that I've gotten into checklists and charts. And so you now get the benefit of this one. All right, so I've, and and this will be in the in the Mac uh, materials, so you will get all of this. Uh, so I put together a chart that shows the statutes, uh, how many years the statutes of limitation is, and the types of cases, and then if there's anything special to know about uh, any of those. Uh, in this particular one, uh, this particular question goes to contracts. And so the seminal case on contracts is Mertola versus Santos. And this is a Supreme Court case from uh, 2018. The decision was written by, by uh, Chief Justice Brutonell. He was not Chief Justice back then, but he is Chief Justice now. And the really beautiful thing about that, and, and I'm gonna give you a copy of this case as well. It'll, it'll be in your packet. But the entire holding of the entire case is in the second sentence. 
Okay, uh, you know, thank you very much, Chief Justice Brutonell. Although the credit card agreement gave the creditor the option of declaring the debt immediately due and payable upon default, we hold that even if that option was not exercised, the cause of action to collect the entire debt accrued as of the date of Santos's first uncured mispayment. So all that, um, what does all that mean? I tried to summarize it here. If you have a closed installment account, that is a promissory note, um, a loan that of a certain amount, I'm borrowing this much this day, and I will pay back this amount that day, then that is a closed installment account. The You do have from six years from the date of the final payment due date to collect the, uh, to sue for the entire unpaid balance. For credit cards, uh, credit cards are different because those are continuing accounts and the credit, uh, the interest rate can change uh, it is six years from the first uncured missing, mi uncured missed payment, even if there is an acceleration clause and they have not accelerated. So what that means uh, is if they missed a payment in February and then made a payment in August, unless that payment in August paid up everything, uh, or, 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 or brought, uh, brought them into compliance, um, then the, the six years still runs from February. Uh, the only way to restart that six-year clock would be uh, by, by um, paying off the balance, by becoming current, so that you're not in default status for, uh, for credit cards. And Judge Bru uh, Justice Brutonell goes into detail about why they, they came up with that reasoning uh, but um, once you've gone into, into default status, if you don't make that current, the six years runs from that first mispayment date. That is different from a closed installment account. And a closed installment account, uh, that can be uh, brought. Uh, you, can, you can sue for each payment after each missed payment, or you can wait uh, for the whole thing to become due. And then also on this, I, I included the security deposit uh, statute. So you'll, you will get this one-page chart. You can um, keep a copy of that chart. All right, so any questions or comments about this? Mary, did that answer your question? Yes, it did. Thank you. I thought it would be a, a good to talk about. Are because we happy to see this? Yes, I love it. Thank you. Okay. All right, and let's go to another question. Charlie, but I, but I want to comment if, in fact, on when you go back to the deposit in the 60 days, if, in fact, the landlord never complied to begin with, then that's a different yeah. circumstance, correct? Yes. Which is and, 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 and I, did, I didn't want them and, to get confused on that. And, and I did put question marks after the 60 days because I, I think okay. the whole thing is a little iffy. But uh, all right, so this one we'll throw out to judges uh, Driggs, Riggs, and Huberman. <laughs> uh, 
HOAs have always added a charge to file in small claims court. This fee was 200 a few months ago. Now they're pushing this charge up to, up to as high as 375. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard to file a small claims case. How do you how do you fairly address this issue? I mean, I think I answered that before. The uh, you know these are fees that are not contemplated in the CCNRs. And so if you do question them and they don't have a basis as to where they're coming from, uh, you can certainly strike them. Um, again, you know, some judges do give the, the HOAs a little bit of leeway in these things uh, because we still think it's better that they're filed in small claims and not brought to regular civil where they attach thousands of dollars in attorney's fees. But um, you, you can certainly question whoever the representative of the HOA is to ask where they came up with that amount and why that is. And if, it, and if the homeowner had been informed, if they knew that these amounts would be added if they defaulted. All right, anyone else have anything else to add on that? All right, we'll go to Can you hear me? I was just saying I was waiting for um, Judge Riggs to respond, but um, I think that you should just avoid living anywhere with an HOA generally. <laughs> if you can. Um, the fees when you um, fall behind, I've just seen people have so many fees and yeah, you just question it where you can, make them explain what they are, it sounds reasonable or if it's it's in the contract you allow it as long as it's reasonable it, it's it's difficult and you, you don't want them to appeal because it does cost even more and using those attorneys it, it's so expensive for them and most of the people don't even understand what's happening to them and why all these fees are just pound you know compounding on top of each other I think Judge Riggs has an announcement. <laughs> no, sorry. That's someone texting All right, me. So the the next subject, um, one of our judges wanted to know if we were going to address civil, uh, civil marijuana violations uh, because civil traffic hearing officers, as of a few weeks ago, can now hear those. Uh, we are going to have a civil traffic class later in the summer that will be taught by Judge Bia and me. Um, and that'll be virtual. We're not gonna be able to do the breakout into the hearing rooms and, and do the mock hearings this year. So it is just gonna be a classroom. But I, I will briefly go into, uh, into the marijuana violations today. And again, you will get a copy of this in your packet. But, uh, and it's in Title 36. Title 36 is the healthcare statute. So whether or not you agree with it, that's where it is. Uh, but it does say for persons under 21 years of age, um, it is unlawful to possess, consume, transport, or transfer without rumination one ounce or less of marijuana, no more than five grams of which can be marijuana concentrate. And uh, the reason we're talking about it for hearing officers is the first violation for someone under 21 is a civil penalty of no more than $100 to the Smart and Safe Arizona Fund, 
and the court has the discretion to order up to four hours of drug education or counseling. As far as I know, none of our judges are doing that, so don't please don't do that. Uh, there's no surcharges or other fees other than time payment, and additional violations are criminal, but you're not going to see them if they're criminal. You're only going to see the under 21s. So this required uh, uh, two new statutes to be placed into Title 22, uh, number 701 and 702. Those allow that civil marijuana, civil marijuana violations can be filed into justice court. Civil traffic hearing officers may now handle. You do apply the civil traffic and voting rules. And so those are going to, the name will be changed to civil traffic, voting, marijuana, civil marijuana violations. I might throw parking in there too, uh, but it's getting so long, it's going to be ridiculous. Uh, and you can uh, that can be filed with the uh, with the long uh, with the short form. Excuse me. Um, they can cross off civil traffic and just uh, check the box uh, civil. Defaults do go into collections, but they will not go to MVD. Uh, and we the, we're still waiting for the Supreme Court to have a decision on the immigration advisory issue. We do have a chart, a bench chart. You've seen it for. Title 28, and so there is one for Title 36 as well, and that's right here. And so you'll see the civil violation is $65. And so you may be questioning, how did, how did we come up with $65? Uh, we actually did a survey monkey poll of our judges, and uh, $65 was the average uh, some judges wanted to do 100, other judges wanted to do zero, uh, and uh, we were everywhere in between, and so we did come up with uh, $65. So any questions about civil marijuana? I think, you know, once those start getting cited, they will be fairly easy to handle. Uh, if you're under 21, you're not supposed to have marijuana. One of the ironies is it's now a softer penalty for a 20-year-old to have marijuana than it is for a 20-year-old to have a beer. Uh, it is still a class two misdemeanor uh, for a 20-year-old to have a beer, but it is a $65 fine to have marijuana. Yes, well, Charles, isn't that also for like say a 14-year-old? Because it just says anybody under 21. The 14-year-old, and, and you'll have to talk to the uh, juvenile court in your county, that will probably be retained by the juvenile court because they will want to have judge, a juvenile judge handle all of those drug cases. So no, I Yeah, so our civil traffic hearing officer is being 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. No, I just meant the penalty. It's more stiff for a juvenile to do something else, but having marijuana will be okay. It, and, and I think the juvenile court is going to be looking at that much more carefully. All right, so our next question is uh, for uh, judges Riggs, Driggs, and Huberman stipulated judgments in small claims, the parties may strike an agreement shortly before or during the hearing. 
If both parties are good with a dismissal, uh, we can do that. But if it's a financial firm, they'll want to draft a judgment. The courts differ on how to proceed. What is the recommended disposition of a case in front of me while waiting for a stipulated judgment to come in? If a signed stipulated judgment comes in early enough, the judge can sign it and the small claims case is vacated. Right, judge Huberman, do you want to respond? Uh, sure. Um, I have seen that a lot of those, um, the, the ones that file in small claims, uh, that they a lot of times come with prepared judgments. Um, and so they are able, I mean, I don't know now with everything being virtual, uh, but when they were there in person, they would step out in the hallway and they could come back with a signed judgment. Um, I think that if they, if the, um, so there's two parts to the stipulation, okay? There could be a stipulated judgment that says, you owed us, you know, $2,000. We're going to accept that you pay $1,000. Judge, please sign the judgment for $1,000, and we will uh, conclude this matter. But another stipulated could be, um, it's $2,000 and you owe, you know, 20% interest per month. But if you pay me $200 every month for the next 10 months, we won't charge you any interest. And as long as you comply with that, then you'll pay the 2,000 and we'll be done. Those agreements require not just the judgment to be signed, but they require an actual stipulation with all this information in it. So obviously you would not be able to do that on the day of the hearing. So my suggestion is that you continue the hearing by agreement of the parties. You would continue the hearing to a later date. That would give them time to present the stipulation. And then if the stipulation is presented to the court, then that hearing can be vacated. And if the parties don't sign the stipulation, then you have a date in place to continue with the, with the small claims hearing. That, that would be my suggestion. If it's a simple one where they're just saying we're agreeing to reduce it to X amount um, or the, the, the defendant is willing to pay X amount, then you can just fill out a regular judgment, the forms that, that we use in the court, and then the two parties can sign it as a stipulated judgment. Uh, but then it doesn't require an additional stipulation as to any other kind of agreement. And I would say on the civil traffic, um, I've seen a handful of them, and I'm always looking for the officer's signature or agreement, you know, that there's not a not kind of a fast one by the defense attorney, but I'm looking for that agreement by, in my case, because of the freeways, the troopers, um, before I sign on that, and then it gets vacated. Okay, Judge Riggs, you, you missed our discussion earlier. Uh, the officer is not a party. The officer cannot make a motion other than a motion. It's for not the motion. Pardon? The, the, the officer cannot, is not a party. The officer is a witness. Right. The only thing they can make. So I, I would be careful about stipulated judgments because the officer does not have the authority to amend the, the complaint. He so can't on the civil. I'm I okay. Well, you're saying judgment, and I'm so I'm in a different place. But as a witness, 
you're saying he can't recommend a change? He can recommend a change. He that's, cannot, that's what I've seen. Right. He cannot sign a pleading or a oh, stipulation. Yeah. Okay. He, he can ask, when he's under oath, he can testify that this other charge might be a better charge. And then I'll ask why. But um, he's not he's not a litigator. He's not an attorney. He that. can't be making decisions. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else on this subject? All right. So the next question is, and this is a follow up on our in, uh, implicit bias class. Uh, and how do we? What tools can we use to avoid implicit bias and still make our ruling within the time limit that we have for each case? My response to that is you should have done your homework on whether or not you have implicit bias before you even start a hearing. Uh, if, if you've done any of the implicit bias tests, then, then you know what to look for. And so, um, to ensure that, that you're not unfairly biasing any of the parties, uh, you should know what to look for before the hearing has even started. Uh, and so it shouldn't take long to determine whether or not uh, you have a bias that is implicit and that may be affecting your decision making. Does anyone else want to chime in on that one? Yes, Charles. I think the question that I had about that was the, the, when we took the class, the judge seemed to indicate that in the cases where implicit bias might occur, I think this particular judge said she found that it was easier to ask for a continuance to give the judge an opportunity to think about the testimony and the evidence that came through and then make a decision, as opposed to, again, because of our limited time, to make the decision right away. That was my question. So, so what I would say to that is that you can always take a case under advisement. And there's many reasons why you might want to take a case under advisement, not just because you think you may have biases, but because uh, you need to research some legal aspect or you need to do the math or you're concerned that someone's going to uh, have a, a bad reaction in the court when you tell them they lost. And so you may not want to tell them right then and there. So there's many reasons to take a case under advisement. We found some time ago when we had suggested to the hearing officers that there was a possibility to take cases under advisement that everybody thought they had to take all cases under advisement and no one was making any decisions on the days of the hearing. And so the idea is for the hearing officer to find a balance and only take under advisement the cases that you feel are really needed. If you can make the decision from the bench, it is clearly the best place to make it. If you feel that you need to deliberate more with yourself in order to have a fair decision, then I don't think anyone can tell you not to. Um, I think what what I think what the training was trying to say 
is that when you make the check, the internal check, if you are reacting to someone because it might be because of bias instead of uh, based on the facts of the case, um, and you realize at some point that, that, that you need to make that check, then you do so. But that doesn't mean that you need to take all cases under advisement just in case you think you have some implicit bias. I mean, you need to check your bias in a different in a different way, I would think. Um, to me, what, what, what I find is important and I find that all self-represented litigants really appreciate is when you can give them a basis for your ruling. So if you have a basis that you can give for the ruling, uh, then that takes the bias probably out of it because now you have a real reason, not just because, oh, you were rude, so I'm going to give judgment to the other person, right? Where you can say, I heard the evidence and, you know, so-and-so proved that um, that they made you a loan and that you had not paid it. You yourself admitted that you didn't pay or whatever it was, so I'm finding for the plaintiff or whatever. And again, if you do take a case under advisement, um, I personally think that any case that's taken under advisement needs to be accompanied by a written ruling. They need to know why, if you took it under advisement because you couldn't make the decision at that time, you need to show that you put some thought into the decision that you made. That's my opinion. Yeah, I've gotten better. I now know how to write smaller rulings. I used to write long, long rulings. Um, it doesn't have to be very long. It just has to, you know, the same thing that you would tell them if you were ruling from the bench. I considered this evidence. I found this more compelling. This is what I'm ruling. And if I can follow up on Judge Huberman, if you have parties that are really hot, you know, and you feel if I make a decision, um, for one or the other, because they've been there's so much emotion and animosity as part of the hearing between the parties, and you and you can't tap it down. Always take it under advisement so that you don't have fisticuffs out in the parking lot where no one's watching. So just think about that. Think about you and just keeping keeping the temperature down, even if you've made your decision and then you just step out, write it up, and and give it to the clerk. Um, but I, I just think it, it's smart to do that. Don't feel pressed, it, especially if, you know, they, a lot of people are calm, but you do get that handful that um, could be a real problem if you announce your decision right away. And that uh, ties into the next question. Someone asked, what happens when I push the panic button? Well, if you do, um, it should be bringing the security from the front to your court. Um, hopefully you don't have to do that, but if if you do that, at least at Northeast, uh, that, that should be the automatic response. Because I'll tell you the truth, they don't know if it's a hearing officer, one of the clerks or the judge pushing the button. So they're gonna come immediately and um, Make sure things are calmed down. And if a party needs to be walked out with security, they're more than willing to do that. We have one, one of the things that, that, that I've discovered that can 
frequently diffuse a situation as if, as if there is a clerk in, in the courtroom to, to say loud enough for everyone to hear, uh, can you go ahead and notify security that they need to be present? Uh, and, you know, then a, a, a wise person generally will calm down at that point. Um, but the, the security button is going to work differently in different buildings, and in some courts they're going to be far more responsive than they are in other courts. And, and really the best thing to do is to just try to not let it get that hot um, or you know, try to diffuse it as soon as, soon as you see that the parties are, are getting out of control. Um, you can take a recess, uh, and um, if, if and that may not work because they might yell at each other during the recess. Uh, but if you can take a recess and order one of the parties out of the courtroom, um, leave the recorder on so that it's clear that you're not talking to the other party while this is happening. But but you can do that as well. Uh, do any of our other judges want to talk about that one? Well, in in my building, we're informed that it does. When you push the button, it goes to central security, who then alerts the security in the building. And my courtroom is at the very end of all the courtrooms. The, the hearing officers, they're in the front. So you're closer to the actual security, so you may be more protected. But I keep an air. Oh, no, you froze. Air horn um, on my bench just in case it's something that needs to be diffused. Really loud noise. <laughs> oh, I froze. Can you hear me now? Wait, wait, I didn't hear. Did you said you make noise? Oh, we can't hear you again. I have an air horn. I learned that from one of the... Can you hear? I don't, I don't know when you can hear and you can't hear. I'm writing the comments. I heard I that you, you had an You have one of those boat horns? Yep. Everyone will hear that. Um, we're actually running out of time, so we're going to move through these a little quicker. The next question is about um, personal, uh, personal wear and tear. Uh, and the, the person says they have a website that they can go to for that. And um, here's what scares me about that. When you watch the ethics presentation by uh, uh, Judge Downey, uh, judges are not ethically permitted to, to do research on their own. Uh, so, uh, and one of the judges in another state got, um, got penalized for going to Zillow to determine the fair market value of a property. So clicking on another website is, is going to be problematic if it is determined that you are doing your own research on a case. What you, um, we have distributed uh, lists in our trainings in the past, uh, and I think that it's okay to go to your training materials. And, and I do have a list here that, that um, Judge Yuri has given in previous classes, and uh, Judge Huberman has retained that. Um, so if you get it in, in a training class, that would be okay. But if you're clicking on a website, you're, you're allowing expert testimony without cross-examination, and, and that really 
could be considered problematic. So I would be careful about that. Does anyone have anything they want to add about that? Okay, uh, we'll move along. Uh, there's a, a couple of questions about doing things on video uh, with respect to identification and civil traffic hearings. If for civil traffic, if the defendant has requested to appear telephonically or virtually, um, they by rule they have waived their identification. If the matter was scheduled uh, set uh, virtually and it wasn't their choice then um, it's harder to apply that rule and if the defendant really wants to to uh, impress upon that then you can reschedule the matter and, and require the defendant to come in in person uh, so that the officer can testify him in purpose in person if we're on video then you can just you know, do your best on video to, to try to do to to try to do that, uh, and and of course there are problems with uh, identification on video, especially if your name uh, appears right under your picture like mine does. And, you know, and can you do identify the defendant, Charles Adernetto? Well, yes, he's that incredibly handsome man uh, who who's uh, appears right above Charles Adernetto. Um, we have problems with in-court uh, identifications as well, uh, because the defendant is usually the person sitting at the defendant table uh, behind the placard that says defendant sitting right next to the defendant attorney. Uh, so, you know, there, there are problems. We just have to make do with the best we can. Another question with remote hearings is exchanging exhibits. And yes, we do recognize that exchanging exhibits can be difficult. Uh, we are moving to Court Connect and uh, for video hearings, and there is going to be a way to display, just like I've been displaying stuff, and, uh, and I think it's going to have the ability to upload documents as well. So that can resolve some of that, I hope. Um, but we, we can't guarantee that. So does anyone have anything to add on identification or virtual hearings? All right, we'll do another one quickly. Can we hear assignment cases in small claims court? By this, I mean when a third party purchases a judgment from the prevailing party and then files a small claim case against the original defendant to obtain the original judgment. Uh, and that is uh, right now, no, uh, but soon probably yes. Uh, one of the statutes that um, has been adopted in the legislature this year does apparently allow that. Uh, it will allow professional judgment buyers to buy judgments and proceed in small claims court. That is not effective yet. We will talk about that on our annual law uh, law update, which is on July 22nd. Does anyone have anything to add about that? All right, we're moving along quickly. Uh, and Judge, Huber, Judge Huberman wanted to talk about interest rates. We have to be careful about reducing interest rates. We do have a best practice on that subject. 
that best practice is going to be included in your uh, in your handout. Excuse me. Let me. And it is called interest rates in civil cases. And so, um, you know, we all have a problem with the 212% interest. Uh, and if you just decide that it's unconscionable, the problem is the, the legislature has allowed that interest rate for those very short-term loans. Um, and it, it has, uh, on, on consumer loans, they generally have a cap of 36%. Uh, so it's rather difficult to determine that those are unconscionable. What I do with the 212% is I say that uh, I will uphold the 212% through the last, the date of the last payment. And then, um, so if the agreement, and this is what the agreement is, I agree to borrow $500 today and to pay you $2,000 in a month, which just happens to be 212%. Uh, but I certainly didn't understand that I was agreeing to pay 212% for the rest of my life uh, because nobody in their right mind would agree to do that. Uh, so I will honor the contract through that last payment date and then um, give 10% interest after that date because it is a debt based on a written contract. And the, you'll see the statutes do say that if it's a debt based on a written contract, the interest rate is 10%. So I don't declare it unconscionable. I just say that that, um, that, the con that what the party agreed to was to pay that amount on that date, you're not to pay 212% for the rest of their life. Do any of the other judges want to chime in? Judge Huberman. No, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, I know that um, one stop, they reduce the interest rate on their own. They don't ask for the, the exorbitant amount going forward. Um, but there is one of the, one of the, title loan companies that reduces the interest rate to 25%. Uh, just be aware of that. That's a made up number. They, they, they decided because you were going to reduce the, the, the 180% or the 204% that you were going to reduce it down. So they put it in at 25%. And that is not the 10% that Charles was just talking about. Um, and it's, it's just a number that they made up. So I mean, I routinely strike those down again to 4.25. Just be aware. And thank you. And thank you for yeah the make the the made up interest rate. An interest rate that you're going to do is one of three interest rates. Either it's going to be the contract rate, 10% for a, a a debt based in writing, or the legal interest rate, which is currently 4.25%. You can't just make up another interest rate, nor can, uh, it, well, you can make up an interest rate, but it's not going to be justifiable if it gets appealed. I mean, how, how did you decide to just create another interest rate? Either you're going to apply the contract rate or the legal rate or the written contract rate of 10%. 
I have a company, a title company that comes to my court and um, I think they hope it's a pro tem signing my judgments because they'll put 3% interest, but it says per month. So it's really 36% and that's their little way of you're like, oh, they went down to 3% per month. And if you change it to the 4.25, you're at per month and then it's worse. Um, so they try to do that um, and you know, they think that they can just, you know, do 36%. Read, that's read a the compromise from their. Interesting, because I've never, that one I've never seen. I get the 25%, but I've never seen the 3% per month. High interest and bring it down to. All right, and we had, uh, we've, We've run out of pre-prepared questions. We have a couple minutes left. Does anyone have any other questions or anything for the good of the order? Did you all find this valuable? Yes. Okay. I would just like to say that Thank uh, you very I'm much. happy I am to see Quentin here. <laughs> say what? I just want to say how happy I was to see Quentin. Always. Okay. And I, well, want, thank, um, I, and I want to thank everyone um, because you all really help a lot of us judges that have very busy calendars. And and I see Rocco there, though he doesn't come to Northeast anymore. But um, I know, you know, when he had questions, he had no problem coming to me. If you're in Northeast, you know. <gasps> Please ask the judges if we're here and to, if you have any questions on something, because we're all we all appreciate what you're doing for us um, and taking a bit of, you know, our calendar volume um, off our shoulders. So it's a great help. And we do appreciate it. Yes, thank, thank you all. Uh, and as we indicated earlier, uh, actually. This conference will now be recorded. <laughs> All right, Judge, Judge Driggs uh, threw out an invitation for hearing officers in her court. I've been doing them all, so um, let me know, or let my manager know that you want to come to uh, Katie Biltmore. All right, and so... Uh, right, any hearing officers that want to come to Arcadia Biltmore um, and use my small claims or my civil traffic And, and I'll echo what the other judges have said. Thank you all. You're, you're doing a great community service, it, um, especially in a, in a kind of scary time that we've had in the last year and a half. Uh, I, I know it, um, people have been reluctant to leave the house, and, and so your service is even uh, more greatly appreciated in this time. Uh, the CoJet certificate will be at the back of the packet, and we'll get that packet out and everything should be uploaded in a day or so. All right, have a great day, everybody. Thank you.